It's not just about singing the music because I like it. I'm singing the music because I need to sing the music. You know that the music that you're doing will have such an impact on you personally, as well as those who are listening to it. This music moves everybody. That's Gwendolyn Wesley, a member of St. Louis Symphony's In Unison Chorus. I'm Jeremy Goodwin, and this is Cut and Paste, St. Louis Public Radio's arts and culture podcast. The In Unison Chorus specializes in repertoire written by black artists, from arrangements of 19th century spirituals to contemporary gospel and pieces by African-American composers. The St. Louis Symphony Orchestra formed the chorus in 1994 for a one-time concert and it's stuck around. It's in the middle of its 25th season right now. That includes two concerts at Powell Hall with the orchestra and a free a cappella concert there in May. The chorus was started as a way to bridge the black church and the concert hall. From a musical perspective, you can hear that blend in the finale of its recent concert, Dr. Robert Ray's Gospel Mass. That's a groundbreaking piece he wrote in 1978. He was also the chorus's founding director, which is just one aspect of a long and impressive career. In this episode of Cut and Paste, I talk with two members of In Unison Chorus and Dr. Ray himself. First, let's listen to my conversation with two chorus members who have really interesting perspectives. They are Gwendolyn Wesley, who has been with the chorus for all of its 25 years, and Brittany Graham. She is part of its Young Artist Program for singers under 30. I sat down with them in a meeting room upstairs in Powell Hall. Gwendolyn already knew Robert Ray when he started the chorus. He was the minister of music at her church, Westside Missionary Baptist, and he was her daughter's piano teacher. So I asked her to talk about the beginnings of the chorus. He asked a number of different churches if they would have volunteers come and audition to be part of the chorus. This was just an exciting opportunity to sing with a world-renowned symphony, but also just to be part of this whole new experience for a small group of singers. I say small group, it was a hundred of us. <laughs> and, and made up basically of African-American churches. And the whole idea was to bring the symphony to the churches in a way that people felt comfortable coming to Powell Hall. And so if they saw us on stage and um, recognized um, faces and heard the music, then it would broaden Um, the whole experience for everybody, for those who've seen us for the first time, but also for black churches and their parishioners to come to Powell Hall. And that first time you got together, it was, the idea was for one concert, right? It was supposed to be for one concert, but that concert was so successful that there was a push to have this course stay together and to become part of the St. Louis Symphony family. It took a little time for everybody to get comfortable with the whole concept of an ongoing chorus. When you say everyone, do you mean on the singer side or the, or the orchestra side? I'm talking about on all sides because this is a different experience for everybody. Uh, you had the, the symphony chorus, but the in unison chorus did a different type of music. And so this uh, music was more, I guess, germane to those of us who are part of an African-American culture. And so just bringing that to the stage of Powell Hall had an impact on not only the singers, those of us who were here, but also for those who heard it. Uh, it's a different kind of a sound. And so that, I think, um, was the benefit of having um, the In Unison Chorus formed um, to introduce to the community. Um, and when I say community, I'm talking about the community of St. Louis Symphony Orchestra, those who are normally here for traditional sounds, but also for those who are not used to being in Powell Hall. 
Do you remember that first concert? Was there a point when you realized that it was clicking and things were working? <laughs> the fact that you could come on the stage of Powell Hall and you could sing behind this magnificent orchestra. You know, I'd been as a little kid uh, coming to Powell Hall to hear the orchestra, but to be on the stage with the orchestra and just to hear the fact that we could sing together and play together at the same time and make beautiful music, yeah. I said, this is right. <laughs> this is something that, that we should be doing, yeah. Tell me a little bit about your, your background as a singer, would you? Well, okay, I've been singing since I was 12, I guess, and again, my church was Westside Missionary Baptist Church, and so, um, but I've been singing since I was 12 publicly to be now expanding into an area that was new to me, singing on a different stage, a different, totally different audience. So for me, it was was an opportunity to grow beyond my expectations. Who'd have thunk? A little kid, a little black girl, you know, <laughs> in St. Louis City Public Schools would have an opportunity to sing with the St. Louis Symphony Orchestra. Mm-hmm. But the more we sing and the types of music that we sing, the broader we all are in our ability to really sing the music that is not just of our culture, mm-hmm. but it's of so many other cultures. And I think that that's an amazing piece. Tell me a bit about the repertoire. What, what, what do you perform with the Indian Unison Chorus? <laughs> Tell me what, it'd be easier to say what we don't perform right, with the Indian Unison Chorus. We're not limited in, in what we do. Mm-hmm. But one thing that we do want to do is to help people understand that we don't just sing rhythm and blues. We don't just sing um, blues. We don't just do rap. We can sing anything than anybody else can. Mm-hmm. Um, but most of the times, in order for us to get on a stage like a power hall, you'd have to do more of a European type mm-hmm. of singing and actually do that. The spirituals that we do, they are so moving, um, and they, they speak to the heart of, of who we are as a people, but they're also such a critical part of the fabric of this country. And if somebody doesn't do that, then we're missing out on our rich heritage. To hear the vocal richness that these voices bring is something that you don't get from, and, and this is not a criticism, this is just saying that it's different. You don't get that necessarily some, from some of the other music that other choruses are singing mm-hmm. because it's, it's our experience. It, mm-hmm. It's our life experiences that nobody can duplicate. Yeah, I agree. I think it's really important that we're, we are able to come along with the St. Louis Symphony, which is America's second oldest orchestra, which is really amazing right here um, in St. Louis. But we're also able to um, give spirituals the same level and importance as Beethoven's Ninth and Mozart's Requiem, which um, before it has not had a platform like that, which I think is very important because, you know, we see like art songs with just piano and voice, but to see it displayed with a big orchestra and like over a hundred singers with the conductor is truly amazing. And it brings it up on this level that I think that the arrangers and composers of the songs from back then and in the times of slavery would 
wouldn't have even imagined. So I think we're really paying tribute and honor to our ancestors, which is really amazing. Brittany, you, you, you do some work with the Opera Theater of St. Louis. Mm-hmm. So you, you've got some professional experience performing European classical yes. music. Yes. But you both grew up singing in the church, it sounds like. Exactly. What you do in the chorus here, where, where does that overlap and, and, and where is it different? Mm-hmm. I think that's the amazing thing about singing with this chorus. And like Gwen said, um, you get this sound that you're not used to hearing because I believe as um, African-American singers, we're able to bring the struggle that we have endured in our lives into this music. And that sound is not typically heard. And from what I know, this is not done often. So to hear this in this in its rarity and uniqueness is really something special. And it's an honor and a privilege to be able to do that here. To expand on that a bit, <laughs> you know, I know a, a lot of the, the, the white European composers mm-hmm. incorporated folk themes mm-hmm. and things from their, from their different cultures, from the countryside. It wasn't all through the academy, exactly. right? Mm-hmm. Um, exactly. In terms of bringing your, your voice as, as black women in the United States onto the stage in, in Powell Hall, and working with some of that inherited repertoire that comes to us from the from the white composers of Europe, is there an element of claiming space in that world? And do you feel like there's room for you there? I, I do think there's room for us there. I, I think of people like Leontine Price and, and Jesse Norman who have made a career um, and who are icons in, in the black opera and classical community um, who, who have been unapologetically themselves, but they were still able to come in and they could go and sing Porgy and Bess, My Man's Gone Now, or He's Got the Whole World in His Hands, arranged by Margaret Bonds, and come and bring that spiritual aspect of it, but also come and do, um, I mean, Aki Fields by Mozart or anything else of that manner, Puccini and things like that. So I, th- I think there is a place, and we have trailblazers like that who, um, who have made it accessible when it was not before. I just found it interesting that you said, do we have a place in there, and how could we not? Um, hmm. The only thing that had been missing was opportunity. Mm. So wherever there's opportunity, yes, there's a, there's a place for it. Not only is there a place, there should be mm-hmm. a place. I mean, how else can you complete this whole picture of who we are as a country, as a people, if you leave parts of it out? Um, that means it's incomplete. And so I think that what we do is to miss out on the richness of the total American culture. We've missed out on all of that. Mm-hmm. Um, so this, with singing within Unison Chorus, singing on the stage, singing with the, uh, with the orchestra, that is our place. And all we needed to do was to, to, to be allowed to be in the place. With Dr. Robert Ray's Gospel Mass, it's still in the form of a mass. Like there's a Kyrie, there's a Credo. Um, so it follows the European order of what a mass is. But you have these grooves in it. You have a little bit of jazz. You have a little bit of rock section. There's drums. There's nothing like it. And so that way we're able to be more flexible. But there are parts, um, like in the Anus Dei at the end, where it is a more classical or European sound, but you, but we get to have a little bit of more movement. It's able to be flexible and fluctuate, whereas when we do Mozart, it's it's not. Um, it's not. He wrote what he wrote, and um, you, you should follow that. Um, if you don't, you might get in a little bit of trouble.
the Morgan State University Choir playing Robert Ray's Gospel Mass. That performance is with orchestra, as you heard. We'll hear shortly how the piece is open to a range of musical interpretations, even as the composition itself blends different styles. Okay, so I was really excited to get Robert Ray on the phone. He's really a legend of St. Louis music, though a, a, a bit unsung. He grew up here, uh, decades ago, he toured the country at different times as accompanist for two legendary African-American concert singers. That's William Warfield. His many credits include the 1951 film Showboat. And also Robert McFerrin, who was the first black man to sing at New York's Metropolitan Opera. Robert Ray taught at University of Illinois and for 18 years at University of Missouri-St. Louis. He founded In Unison Chorus and wrote the Gospel Mass. Now, he's happily retired, he said, but he spoke on the phone about how the Gospel Mass came to be. The Mass was actually written for an organization called the National Office of Black Catholics. One year, the convention was in St. Louis, Missouri. So I decided to write the Mass as a uh, contribution to that convention. And so it was first performed by a convention-type chorus. And that's a tradition that goes back hundreds of years in European classical music, right, of setting, setting the mass to original music? Yes. The inspiration for that came from, I guess, my, my training at Northwestern U- University. In the course of our music history courses, et cetera, we had to study a lot of masses, the Schubert Mass, the Brahms Requiem. I mean, we had to spend time actually studying those, and so I began to be very familiar with the, the form of the liturgy and the composition that had been written today. And so when it was time for me to, to, to do something, when I got the idea of actually doing something, those were the models that I had in mind, uh, because there were no other African-American models. I think uh, my setting was probably, if not the first, one of the very first uh, gospelized settings of the Mass. Did you grow up in the, in the Catholic Church? I did not. I grew up AME in, in St. Louis, Missouri, St. Paul AME. But I hooked up at that time with a, a, a very active minister in the church, Father Clarence Fivers, and he was actually considered the sort of guru of, I guess, what they call then Black Catholicism. Yeah, and I've I've read that the, the National Office for Black Catholics was looking at developing a, a liturgy that's rooted in some African traditions, and that's part of what you were involved with with that group, right? That's right, and and this minister, Father Clarence Rivers 
was very, very active. He had a liturgy team of about, oh, six or seven people that he actually toured with, and they were going around the country showing how African-American music could be utilized in the uh, liturgy of the church. So the Mass was basically written in response to that. Forgive me if I'm wrong, or educate me if, if I'm wrong, but I don't think of a strong association between gospel music and the Catholic Church. It was not. It was not a strong uh, at the time. Well, it was met with sometimes some very resistance. A lot of the African-American people especially said, you know, we left the other churches to, to come to the Catholic Church, and now they're bringing this music back into the Catholic Church. So there was probably a 50-50 response in some of those early early years to the music. But eventually it prevailed, and uh, it's very exciting. Father Rivers, his own compositions were sort of jazz-based, all the African-American forms of music were, were, were pretty much uh, access, but heavy emphasis on, on gospel music. So to put a finer, a finer point on it, when you sat down to compose that, what styles and musical and cultural traditions were you looking to weave together? To be honest, I think I brought all of them together, because when you, when you hear the Mass, when you think of pure gospel, it's not a pure gospel composition. It utilizes some jazz elements, it utilizes some classical elements, and combines that with some gospel elements. So uh, I was using all of my, my full palette of, of music instruction as I sat down to write it. And that includes some, some influences from what, what, I, what I call European classical music? Oh, yes. When you, uh, when you hear the mass, you can definitely hear some Some sections are clearly based uh, on a tradition of those European models, and then uh, combining that with the, with the uh, more contemporary gospel of that time. The Gospel Mass is an important piece of the choral repertoire, but there doesn't seem to be a commercially recorded version. It does have a global reach, though. Here's a performance by the choir of the Medical School of Białystok. That's in Poland. Oh. performance is a chorus plus keyboard. Ray wrote the mass for just chorus, drums, bass, and keyboards, but in 1989, Paul Wilson arranged it for a full orchestra. I asked Robert Ray how a piece based on the Catholic mass, written for 120-person chorus, can sound different depending on who's playing it, such as a symphony orchestra. And by the way, in a moment here, you're going to hear excerpts from a version by the Angelus Chorale playing in Pasadena, California. It gives it, it really does give it a, a very different flavor. Sometimes I think with rhythm section, you have sometimes more flexibility and you get a lot more improvisation. Everybody is basically improvising in one way or another, they're free to improvise. The keyboard player, certainly out of the gospel tradition, has a lot of opportunities 
to improvise. The bass player can take the bass line as it exists, and as long as he doesn't interfere with the harmonies of, of the work, he's free to add notes and do all kinds of things to improvise. And the drummer is certainly uh, just very, very improvisational. He takes that framework, but then makes it his own, you know. In, in the orchestration, everything is pretty well written out, and not a whole lot of room for improvisation, except in the solo. And they get a lot of opportunity to, to improvise. I got the chance to observe some rehearsal the other night at Powell Hall, and there were some moments where, where the chorus director was saying, all right, this is a moment where I think we need to focus a bit on more of a, a classical articulation in terms of our mm-hmm. vocals versus versus a gospel approach. So it seems like even working through movement by movement through the composition, there's different moments that bring out different sides of that composition to light. Exactly. The opening of the I Believe is an example of writing in chordal fourth. You know, uh, harmony is usually based on the interval of a third in music, but I opened the, the credo movement with intervals of a fourth, and then some very sort of contemporary classical style stuff a little bit later. So the, the, the work really does incorporate a number of different styles. The name gospel mass is sometimes misleading because it's not a mass in the purest of gospel style if if you're a gospel purist. That's in unison chorus rehearsing some of the gospel mass. Since Dr. Ray retired in 2010, it's been led by Kevin Macbeth. And that's Chris White you hear on piano. So we heard in unison was formed in part to open the doors of Powell Hall, to members of African-American communities who may not have felt comfortable wading into the very white world of classical music. So how has that part gone? Let's hear some more from Gwendolyn Wesley, the chorus member since 1994. She said she does see some members of the churches who participated in unison at classical music concerts at Powell Hall. But the more non-traditional concerts that have been added to the schedule in recent years help too. They're using Powell Hall for something other than your traditional type of music. Uh, there's been things down here to honor Prince. Who would have thought that? Right. Powell <laughs> Symphony Hall, come on. The Michael Jackson tribute. I mean, it's such a broad and an expansion of what is it that Powell Hall offers to this community uh, so that you start to bring in other segments of the community so that they feel comfortable here and find out that, you know what, this place is I should be down here. I mean, I brought my granddaughter to one of the, I can't remember the piece that was being done at the time, but there was an African-American baritone opera, and um, I told her what we were going to do, and so she brought her notebook, and I said, so what I want you to do is to pay attention to all the instruments on the stage. And so I was ready to go. You know, I wanted to get out a little bit early. She didn't want to leave because she was busy watching those instruments on the stage. Now, what impression did that give her, it'll, I think what it does is to feed her the fact that you can be down on that stage playing that instrument, you know? And so we're growing up our kids so that they can appreciate it even more and actually see themselves in a role at Powell Hall or any other symphony hall for that matter. So I think it's having a big impact. Because I I think 
If, if, you, if you're in a city that's 48% African-American and you're looking around at an audience that is overwhelmingly white, there's a re something is happening there that not everyone feels comfortable or they're, they're not being invited or whatever it is, and there's more work to do than just having a Black History Month concert, right? I mean, and it seems like the relationship is much deeper here. over time where it started out as all African-American and so there's so many other people that want to be part of the chorus now um, that are not necessarily of African-American culture and so we see that on stage and, and, and it is happening that that kind of a transitional stage and, and it, it speaks to the fact that this music moves everybody. It's not just us. Mm -hmm. It's uh, others that really want to get in here and sing it because they are so moved, so impressed by the impact that the music is having on them as well. And it's not just about uh, singing the music because I like it. I'm singing the music because I need to sing the music. This is a place of uh, respite for me as well as a place of enjoyment for me. Um, this offers so much more than just the, the sound. You know that the music that you're doing will have such an impact on you personally, as well as those who are listening to it. 25 years, yes, it's been 25 years, and I keep saying, well, Gwen, when do you stop? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> but I want to be able to tell myself to stop before somebody decides, Gwen, you can't, you need to sit down. I don't want to do that. <laughs> can't hit those notes anymore, <laughs> so I don't want to get to that point. But until then, yeah, this is where I need to be. This fulfills my musical life. was Gwendolyn Wesley. We also heard from Brittany Grant. They are both members of In Unison Chorus. We also heard from Robert Ray, composer of the Gospel Mass. I am Jeremy Goodwin, and this has been Cut and Paste, St. Louis Public Radio's arts and culture podcast, produced with help from our executive editor, Shula Newman. For links to some of the music you heard here, go to stlpublicradio.org. You can get Cut and Paste. If you have a smart speaker, you have access to the entire world of NPR and St. Louis Public Radio. All the latest news and all the captivating stories. Activate our voices with yours by telling your smart speaker to play St. Louis Public Radio. Taste there or wherever you get your podcasts. Cut and Paste is sponsored by Gemma, architects, planners, and designers.